Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, John Singleton Copley. My first guest is Jane Kamensky, the author of A Revolution in Color, The World of John Singleton Copley. The book is a new biography that places one of early America's best and most important artists within the context of the political and revolutionary events of his time, and details how Copley and his family were actors in them. Amazon offers it for 20 bucks in hardcover, and at about $16 for Kindle, we'll have links on manpodcast.com. Kamensky is a professor of history at Harvard University and the director of the Schlesinger Library. She's a historian of early America and the Atlantic world. On the second segment, Hammer Museum curator Anne Elgood discusses her new exhibition, Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World. Elgood's retrospective is the first major Durham show in the United States in over 20 years. But first, Jane Kamensky, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Emperor's Treasures, Chinese Art from the National Palace Museum, Taipei, showcasing masterpieces that highlight the artistic and cultural contributions of imperial rulers in China, from the Song Dynasty to the Qing Dynasty. With more than 160 objects, the exhibition reveals 800 years of Chinese history and tradition, on view through January 29th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org treasures for more. Don't miss the critically acclaimed exhibition, A Revolutionary Impulse, The Rise of the Russian Avant-Garde, now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. A century ago, Russian avant-garde artists including Kazmir Malyevich, Alexander Rodchenko, and Olga Rosanova created art to support a radically transforming society. Now, on the occasion of the centennial of the Russian Revolution, MoMA has brought together must-see works from this fascinating era in what the New York Times calls, quote, a sparkling exhibition. Plan your visit today. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Richard Serra Prints, on view through April 30th. Showcasing over 45 years of printmaking by Serra, an American sculptor best known for his large steelworks, the show reflects the artist's interest in process, the monumental, and a desire to push the boundaries of traditional printmaking methods and techniques. Learn more about the show at NasherSculptureCenter.org. And we're back. Jane Kamensky, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here, Tyrell. Thank you. Before we jump into John Singleton Copley's life, why did he interest you? You're you're a non-art historian. You're a historian of early America and the Atlantic world. Why was he interesting to you as a biographical subject? I had been looking to write a story about art and the early American nation for a long time. Got interested first in Gilbert Stewart and the ways in which the American National Project representationally centered so heavily on portraits relative to England or France at the time, say. And as I started working on Stuart and then on other American provincials who were in London during the revolutionary period, I found that Copley kept elbowing himself to the front of the room, much as it turned out he did in life, because he wrote a great deal, you know, relative to other 18th century artists, his written corpus of about a thousand family letters is incredibly extensive and incredibly revealing as much as he thought of himself as an English subject from cradle to grave. He had a kind of American aspirational quality, a sort of ceaseless yearning in badly spelled letters. And I, I loved the way 
that I could, you know, as a historian, it was important to me to see him unfold himself on the page in his beautiful penmanship and his terrible spelling as it was to see him unfold himself on canvas. And then I came to realize in the course of the book that he also has a historical perspective we rarely see in the study of the American Revolution, which is that he was sort of the Bartleby of the American Revolution. He just preferred not to. And this was actually a common posture that people were neither passionate loyalists nor passionate devotees of the project of the United States, but like Copley, were sort of vexed and shifting neutrals waiting to see how it all came out. So that Copley had that story and unfolded that story in both art and prose with the added ironic wrinkle that his art has come in the American public eye and in American museology to speak for the revolution made him kind of irresistible to me. So it sounds like your interest started with his writing. Is there, and, and, and you know, you just talked a little bit about how his, his writing was interesting in the context of the era. Is his painting similarly betwixt? Yeah, I think it's, it's, Astride the Atlantic, as scholars have been saying for the better part of, for more than a half century, even though we still want to render him as an American. And it's it also bestrides hierarchies of status in interesting ways, in the sort of kiss-up way of all portraitists with his success in bettering himself through marriage and through his art. I, I liked that we could see what he did to please an American provincial audience as well as as well as an English metropolitan audience. I also I have to confess, I just I just love the work. One of the reasons that, you know, Stuart, where I started, frustrated me in in two ways, charming Rue that he was and was so much written about in his day. The the documentary record, as I said, was very thin. And I, you know, the work was so conventional that I couldn't picture spending the better part of 10 years living with it in my mind's eye, whereas I find Copley continually delightful. I'm in my office in the Schlesinger Library now, and the, the Harvard, Harvard Museum yeah. has lent me a, uh, a Copley in this office because we're a special collections library. We have the light and security conditions to support fine art. And I love looking at Dorothy Murray every single day. So I, you know, though in the book, I resist the standard narrative of his art, which is that it is realistic and therefore transcendent that it brings us face to face with long dead archetypally American characters like Paul Revere. And yet, and yet, I think there is a, a kind of knowability to the way that he depicts people that remains compelling to me, even though I know better. And of course, with Stuart, you could just get bored for 10 years in writing about bar bills and drunkenness and bar debts and and snuff stains, right. and, yes, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, you know, I have to say one thing that I like as a biographer and, and also as a, as a sort of creature in the world is I like some edges and corners. And Copley's not rakish like Stewart is, but he's, I find him satisfyingly anti-heroic in his politics and in the way he lived his life. And particularly since my big historical project for the last 
decade or so has been the reclaiming of the American Revolution, I think to recover something other than heroism or villainy, right? He's neither other than heroism or villainy in the period is an urgent historical and indeed an urgent American political priority. I think our contemporary politics would be healthier if we did something with the founders beyond venerating them. Copley resists veneration. Well, Copley is born in 1738, so he is of that generation, which begins to found what would become our nation um, in New England in in the ensuing decades. Describe for us the Boston into which uh, Copley is born. So Copley is born, 1738 is the end of the longest peace that uh, Britain and her colonies have known for 100 years and will know for another 100 years. So he's born into a world of imperial war that's increasingly concentrated on uh, the control of North America, a war that embroils at wars that embroil at various points, Britain, France, and Spain. By being born in or near Boston, we don't have a record actually placing his birth in Boston, but it seems likeliest. He's born in or around a second-tier British seaport that's a bit smaller and much less intellectually lively than Edinburgh, say, or Bristol. He's born into an oceanic world, and I think that's important so that economically, socially, culturally, his Boston is closer to Jamaica, say, or Barbados or Nova Scotia than it is to New York or Philadelphia. It's it's a literary convention that he calls Boston, I'm sorry, that he calls London home, as most 18th century provincials did at the time. I'm sure Joseph Wright of Derby would have also called London home, regardless of whether he was going there or not. When Copley takes the summer of 1771 and goes from Boston to New York, he calls it a summer abroad. So the sort of proxemics of his world are different from what we think it is. It's a mercantile world where having a portrait painted of oneself is part of a, an economic, social, familial strategy of creating a sense of lineage and legacy that many people in the highly transient world of the 18th century Atlantic lacked. It's a world of long-settled people, so that most of the population of Boston in 1738 are descendants of the settler colonials who come there in the 1630s through the 1640s, and Copley's an immigrant in a world of long-settled people. I guess the other significant thing I would say about that world and the way that he's an outlier in it is it's a world of large families, eight, ten children, even twelve are a, are a norm in in the Boston and the New England of 1738 and Copley is for an extended period of his youth an only child and then is the stepbrother to or the half brother to one significantly younger sibling that's really anomalous so i tried to think as i was reconstructing his life and there's nothing that comes from his pen there's nothing that comes from his brush until 1753 and nothing that comes from his pen until the early 1760s. So I'm really trying to upstream or backstream as an anthropologist does to think about the shaping influence of the 1730s, 40s and uh, early 50s on him and think about the things that made him 
as ambitious as he was and as watchful as he was, assuming that the question of what made him as talented as he was really lies beyond the reach of a historian's understanding. But I think that the singularity of being the only child of immigrant parents of, um, for a long period of the time, a single mother who shifted for herself in the rough and tumble world of Boston's Long Wharf. I think that has a shaping influence that lingers in the paradox of ambition and caution that we see in him uh, lifelong. Copley, if I remember correctly from your book, literally grew up on, on, on Long Wharf. So he would have been hyper aware of the oceanic orientation. Of- yeah. And, and the whole city, if you look at, you know, this is common in 18th century port cities. If you look at maps, they perform for their harbor in maps of 18th century Boston. East fulfills the function of North. It's the sort of orienting point of 18th century maps and Long Wharf juts out into Boston Harbor like an arm reaching for London juts out over a half a mile. And there are sort of ramshackle houses on one side, the north side of that wharf attached houses that must have been weather beaten, shingled, story and a half, sort of a shop and a, a couple of rooms above is the way that they look on maps. And uh, his mother, we know, ran a tobacco shop from the ground floor of one of them, and they seem to have lived in three rooms above. You mentioned that Copley made his first painting in in 1753. It's of Charles Pelham. How did Copley become a painter, and who was Charles Pelham? Charles Pelham is a a significantly older stepbrother. If one of the shaping accidents of Copley's early youth is that he's an only child and that his mother is for a long time a famsol trader, an equally significant accident is that when... Mary Singleton Copley remarries in 1748 when Jack, as they called him, was 10. She married another London emigre, Peter Pelham, who had trained formally as a painter, who brought the craft of mezzotint engraving to Boston, and whose household Copley joined at the age of 10, which is about the time that a young boy of no substantial property would go to a kind of apprenticeship. So Pelham was Copley's stepfather for the three years that the household endured before Pelham died in 1751. And I think he literally inherited Pelham's quite specialized tools and expertise. Pelham's tools and expertise became his capital. So that in 1751, Copley's 13 when Pelham dies, You know, he would absolutely, in the family structures of his day, have needed to contribute to this family. It's not clear what Pelham's much older sons from uh, from the first of his marriages, uh, how they related to the blended family. But I think they were substantially off doing their own things with their own families. So he needed to contribute. And the way he had to contribute was the pieces of informal apprenticeship that he had learned from uh, from Peter Pelham. It's possible, likely, in fact, that he also learned from the other quite prominent emigre artist in Boston, who was the Edinburgh-trained John Smybert. Before we get to the wars and the impact various wars will have on Copley's life and production, on his affluence, on his career, is there a 
painting or a portrait uh, from this early period of which you're particularly fond or that you think stands in for the for the period? I think that the, you know, the Charles Pelham painting you mentioned is easily explicable. He's learning the tools of a painter working with canvas, working up a human face, and he paints family members. The other portraits that survive from those early years are of quite humble people, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Mann, the baker's daughter, and her and her husband. To me, the really striking trio of paintings from this period are the large mythological scenes, uh, mythological and allegorical scenes that he paints apparently in 1754. I was really struck. I've seen two of them in person. There, there are three, the Forge of Vulcan, Galatea Rising from the Waves, which I saw at the MFA in store, and and The Return of Neptune, which hangs now in a deck arts setting at the Met. They're rarely hung because they're terrible, but they're also very large. So taking that much, you know, canvas is imported, right? Canvas is imported, paint is imported, stretchers are imported, brushes are imported, pastels, oils, everything, you know, art books. So taking even that much canvas, even that much material to work up a copy of a print that's a copy of a painting, I think in the case of of Neptune, it's a, it's a sort of secondhand, thirdhand copy of a painting, just to take the time to try to paint history in a place like the Boston of 1754 is astonishing you know to he i think by that point he's read enough and heard enough and he's a you know he's a hungry autodidact in what is for the colonies a bookish place you know there's the harvard college library of about 5000 volumes which he can't get to but can probably hear from people who have heard about he knows something about the hierarchy of the genres and that history and allegory are things that he might ought to be aspiring to and paints these paint-by-numbers versions of them, which if we're thinking about a career ladder, is just an ocean of time away from the kinds of portrait commissions he could be scrapping for. You know, portraiture was famously the only thing anybody wanted. So those are the 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 three works from the 1750s, a period when he's just rapidly advancing in terms of skill that really foreshadow both the oceanic imperial visual world that he comes from and what he wants to do in it. My guest is Jane Kamensky. We'll be right back after a break. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents Yayoi Kusama Infinity Mirrors, the first exhibition to explore the evolution of the legendary artist's iconic installations. Featuring an unprecedented six of her dazzling environments, Infinity Mirrors is the most significant North American tour of her work in nearly two decades, opening February 23rd and on view at the Hirshhorn through May 14th. Visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form, on view now through May 2017. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, 
Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax, creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. As seen through nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe, this exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Jane Kamensky. One of the themes that runs all the way through the book is the impact a series of wars have on, on Copley. Um, I think Americans only think of, of one war from this period, you know, the, our, the, war. our war. But of course, you know, as Alan Taylor, for example, points out in his new book, you know, he, his new book is really centered around those early American wars. And really this book for its first half is too. What is the first war to impact Copley's painting career? What impact does it have? And then, and why would a war have such an impact on, on, on a young man painting portraits? You're, you're absolutely right that he lives in a world of war. I counted them all up at some point. There, he lives through four major wars, and Britain is at war often in, if not with, America for 45 of Copley's 77-year-long life. So it's war is the normal condition of his life. And uh, he never serves in one, which is itself sort of interesting. But the the war that the colonists called the Fourth French and Indian War that comes then in the United States to be known just as the French and Indian War and uh, globally to be known as the Seven Years War, though it lasted nine years from 1754 to 1763. That's the war that coincides with the making of his career. And for the kinds of people who wanted portraits, war was a time of tremendous opportunity. So if you think about this uh, mercantile city, this, this trading entrepot that I've described, soldiers are coming in. They need, uh, they need provisions. They need lodging. They need transshipping. Sales need to be made. You know, expeditions need to be launched. Maps need to be made. Everybody from ship owners to horse farriers to prostitutes in a, st- in a city like Boston stood to do well by the Seven Years' War. The fighting was never there. It was a, it was a launching point. So it happened that in the Boston of the second half of the 1750s, precisely when he's going from those early efforts with family members and, and neighborhood folks to making a living at art, there's quite a demand to be depicted. And a significant portion of that demand comes from people who are serving the British in one way or another, often in the scarlet fabric of empire. So I think one of the things that Copley's career shows us in the 1750s into the early 1760s is how much American provincials were for the Redcoats before they were against them. You know, being able to depict oneself and disport oneself in the vermilion fabric of an officer's uniform really was a ticket to preferment in a world of place-seeking and patronage. So I think Copley is, you know, it's, it sounds perverse to think of war as one of the good fortunes of his early life, but he really is fortunate in 
the role that Boston plays in the Seven Years' War just at the point that he needs economically to be, to, to shift for himself, to be an adult. So there are a number of paintings in uniform or in civilian dress that is uniform-like that art historians have never paid much attention to because they're highly conventional and and not visually terribly interesting. They're, they're you know, I think when we see them as uh, as works of art, they're kind of numbing. In fact, I can't think of a single one of those 1750s, early 1760s military paintings that has a major museum installation now. A number of them are still in private hands. You know, it's not until he paints Major Thomas Gage, uh, then Lieutenant General Thomas Gage, in his uniform in 1768, that one of these military paintings is considered both artistically and historically major, and that hangs at Yale's British Art Gallery and is often sort of narratively paired with Paul Revere, which Copley painted at, at nearly the same time. But as stepping stones to a career, those sort of trivial paintings of the 1750s and early 1760s were crucial. And the Seven Years' War was of great benefit. You know, if you think about the fortunes of men like Thomas Hancock and his nephew John, who became Copley's neighbor or whose neighbor Copley became when he made his fortunate marriage in 1769, Copley, not Hancock's marriage, and moved up to create a gentleman farm on Beacon Hill. John Hancock's money came from Thomas Hancock, and Thomas Hancock's money came from the Seven Years' War. In the 1750s, Copley painted Thomas Hancock and developed a relationship with the family that endured to 1764 when Thomas Hancock died and Copley painted on Harvard's behalf, actually at John Hancock's request for Harvard, a door-sized full length of Thomas Hancock and the painting of John Hancock the, seven, the, the same year in 1764-65. So those Seven Years' War connections and commissions keep rippling in some ways antagonistically to the way that the Seven Years' War keeps rippling in American life. It's the Seven Years' War that creates the British national debt that prompts the imperial taxes that provoke the pamphleteering and then the crowd action that ultimately results in the American Revolution. I think Copley would have said it's the Seven Years' War that perfects the system of patronage and preferment that he's still trying to follow into Britain's American war, which is how he understood the American Revolution. Copley is painting British officers. Do these paintings then go back to England and begin to make his name in England, or are we going to have to wait for that? Gage goes back to England and begins to make his name in England. The, the first painting that really makes his name or makes a version of his name in England is what's now called Boy with a Flying Squirrel, an exhibition-style portrait of his half-brother, Henry Pelham, which Copley sends over in 1765 to the Society of Artists of Great Britain, a formation that is itself catalyzed by the artistic and cultural nationalism 
that rises in Britain after the Seven Years' War. So there's a way in which that's a Seven Years' War production too, though it's not a military one. And when that painting lands in London, it's sort of a game of telephone that gets it there, you know, a, a network of sea captains, and it becomes sufficiently detached from its provenance or Copley's Copley's name and story gets sufficiently garbled that it's first taken for the work of Joseph Wright of Darby, who is a near age contemporary and is beginning to show also mimetically realistic work in London in the period. And who also does not live in London. Who also does not live in London, right. So there's a great piece of work to be done on how American provincialism is like slash different from Scottish provincialism or Derbyshire provincialism. I think provincial customers like more mimetic representations of themselves than metropolitan customers who are trained by a growing culture industry to value the trace of the artist's hand. So it's, it, it is a, there's a sort of common provincialism attributed to both Copley and Darby, or to Copley by being taken for Darby. And then he's called William Copley. Um, so when Benjamin West first writes to him about that London debut, he said... Could I interrupt for a second just to do a, a quick little bit of back and fill? So we have the wars ending in, in, in the late 1750s, no Copleys in 1760 or 61 because of a big fire in, in Boston and uh, the impact that has on the local economy. Benjamin West, who you just mentioned, came to prominence in Pennsylvania. He goes to London in 1763, which enables the exchange. Your, uh, I, I interrupt. Right. And and um, West is an important doppelganger for Copley, um, both a foil for me narratively in the book and a foil for Copley in Copley's life. So he goes to, he gets to London in 1763, but he leaves Pennsylvania in in 1760, going first on the grand tour, he lands in uh, Livorno, Italy, which Brits at the time called Leghorn. And it's the Seven Years' War that gets West out of Philadelphia and gets him out at the age of, of 21. He and Copley are born within months of each other. So they really are, in many ways, exact cognates, with the important exception that West has a vastly better personality and Copley has a vastly greater talent. And I've looked for a long time for when they had first for when Copley first knew of West, West was knowable much earlier. West was written about in Pennsylvania prints in the late 1750s, I think 1758. And, you know, West could not possibly have known of Copley much before Boy with a Squirrel went to London, which is partly a gambit to hear from West and West's network but he thinks that a quote-unquote fellow American is likelier to write back and sort of give him this straight dope about how Copley's work might be seen in the metropolis. I think he's basically putting out feelers for whether he could stand up to the competition at home in London. You know, Copley is eagerly taking up a correspondence with West in the wake of that painting being sent. And the correspondence is highly elaborately rhetorical, you know, Pecksniffian. He's sort of a, a Dickens character in his supplication to West, who he says is at the summit of the mighty mountain. The American Raphael. Chartist, which he certainly is. And and West 
tells him essentially, wow, you've done incredibly well for yourself, given that there's nothing to see over there, over there in your little world. And uh, why don't you, why don't you come on over and get some, get some real training, get some visual exposure. I think one of the great advantages, West has two great advantages over Copley in the world of metropolitan arts advantages, which somehow outstrip the fact that he can't really paint very well. One is that he's extraordinarily gracious. He's just a sort of socially lubricated individual. People really like being with him. And I think corollary to that is West left when he was 20, 21. You know, if you're going to entirely remake your manners from country Pennsylvania manners to courtly manners, it's better to do it while the clay is still wet. And Copley missed that chance. The correspondence that he begins with West I think it's the 1765 painting, but the but the first inklings of the correspondence don't come until slightly later. The correspondence lasts eight years, mostly of Copley writing and saying, should I really come? And West saying, yes, you should come. And Copley saying, I can't just now. So by the time Copley makes a journey not out of America as he would have seen it so much as into the heart of empire, He's a, he's a well-formed middle-aged man, pretty stuck in his habits, at least his habits of mind and manner, even though he's able to change the nature of his art quite a lot. One of the reasons Copley doesn't go on the Grand Tour or to London is he's busy in 1769. He's meeting Susanna Clark, better known to us now as Suki. Who was she and why did Copley's marriage to her have such an immense impact on his life, his art, his politics, and, 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 and what was to come far beyond simply Copley's not getting to London in the 1760s? So Copley knew that marriage was an important strategically strategic choice for a man like him. For every woman who married down, there was a man who married up. And, you know, he was somebody who did not come from land or from substantial capital. So he knew that that marriage was an important piece of self-making. He also lived in the era when when love marriage was first coming to be seen as a sort of gold standard of English domesticity and and civilization. Uh, so sometime we know that by the fall of 1768, he was courting her. And in November of 1769, he married Susanna Farnham Clark, who was the daughter of a merchant and a Harvard man, uh, Richard Clark, who had uh, sold a variety of imported goods, Indies goods, both West and East, and become one of the wealthiest men in Boston. Among the other things that Richard Clark sold, rice and indigo, some hardware, occasionally slaves because he was a Caribbean trader and that was always a, a byproduct of the Caribbean trade, which was crucially important to Boston. Among the things that he sold on again and off again in the 1760s as the boycotts of imports heated up was English tea. And in seven, you note in the book that at one point he is responsible for five percent of the tea sold in New England. Yeah, which is an amazing... I mean he's a he's a huge tea merchant. In one of those, you know, for want of a nail moments, he briefly gives it up. Uh, there's a letter from a correspondent saying, "I hear you're, you know, you're done with it. You burned your canisters." 
but as the non-import, as the import ban eases in the wake of what the Patriots call the Boston Massacre, it's it's just too good a business for him not to get back into, and he slides back into it. And in 1773, when Parliament passes the Tea Act to allow East India Company tea to be sold as cheaply as smuggled tea and more directly to American merchants than ever before, he sends his son to fight for a license, um, and he thinks he's very lucky. Sends his son to London to fight for a license. Sends his son to London to fight for a a license. His son is in London off and on, as uh, such a major merchant's business would predict, and feels very lucky at first that his son is one of the Bostonian merchants who prevails. So when the when the tea ships head to Boston in the late summer, early fall of 1773, a significant portion of the East India Company tea that's consigned to merchants of the city is consigned to Copley's father-in-law. So he knew he was marrying his heart's desire and his great good fortune. And I think he didn't know and couldn't have known that he was marrying his politics. Once the dumping of the tea into the harbor happens in December of 1773, Richard Clark becomes persona non grata in Boston. I mean, threatened with... Physically, yes. (laughs) Threatened with, you know, it's, uh, I think one of the things that Copley's story recovers for us is that you don't make... America is not born full-blown out of George Washington's thigh and Lockean ideals, right? There's a lot of violence on the ground. Mob violence. Mob violence. Uh, Mob violence that sounds more like what we associate with revolutionary France than what we tend to allow onto the Freedom Trail. And uh, Richard Clark and uh, even Copley himself are targets of mob threats, if not mob violence. Copley's house is mobbed in May of 1774. Twice in one night. <laughs> Twice in one night. And he, you know, he describes the horror of hearing the Indian yell, as they called it, and says that if the person who they had been seeking, who is a, a kinsman by marriage, if he had been there, he worries that the house would have been pulled down and his family murdered. His family being murdered is probably excessively worrying, um, but people's houses were pulled down. Copley's father-in-law's house was nearly pulled apart in the run-up to the tea party. So things really do get very hot for the family in the spring of 1774, winter of 1773 and spring of 1774. And, And Clark does indeed have to go live outside of the city. Clark lives... Clark lives for the bulk of that season in the fortress on one of the little rocky outcroppings in Boston Harbor, the fortress called Castle William after uh, after King William. And it's it's considered quite scandalous in Boston that such an old man is confined, a virtual, you know, he's he's being protected by the king's troops, but he's also a virtual prisoner. I think Clark never never gets over it. You know, he he does get back to Royal Boston while, you know, before it's besieged by by patriot militiamen and then he does get out to London. He winds up as 
Copley's lodger and the family's funder through the 1770s, 80s, and uh, until he dies in the mid-1790s. But I think he never gets over the sort of flipping of his great status in the pre-war town of Boston to being in fear of his life and at loss of much of his property as America's revolution takes wing. You have written an obviously responsible work of history that does not traffic in, traffic in what-ifs. However, we're just talking so we can. Copley does not go to England in these years. It's obviously useful to his father-in-law to have a man in England. It's easy to imagine how Copley could have served himself and indeed his wife's family by going as well. Did you, while writing the book, think, wow, what if what if Copley had, had, had made the trip in 1770 or 71 or two? Yeah, I think about that counterfactual and also what if he'd just come back in 1784 like so many other loyalist families? And I think that's where, you know, we've talked about the accident of family and the accident of geopolitics with the wars, but the accident of character, right? He's a he's just a very cautious, ruminative, you know, to call him deliberative sounds like there's a process that results in a firm verdict but he really he really just has he's quite indecisive people say this about the way he paints not only in his early autodidact years but in his late career when he's a fellow uh, of the royal academy and one of the most highly rated for a time one of the most highly rated uh, major history and public painters in england is that you know he mixes every color on the palette rather than sort of freely mixing from a handful of colors on the canvas. So I think, you know, he just sifted and sorted too long in both instances. If he had left before the war, uh, before the revolution and come back, he would still have been horrified by the unfolding of the 1770s but one of the characteristics of the fighting in the American Revolution is that it's serial as the British Army tries repeatedly to slay the the beast of rebellion by capturing one after another of what it thinks might be capital cities. So the the fighting leaves Boston, you know, for good in 1776 and never comes back. He could have recovered his career by then. Here's another counterfactual that I think about a lot, Tyler. What if Copley had painted Washington? He's the only major Anglo-American painter not to. Uh, Washington makes the fortunes of Gilbert and uh, of Gilbert Stewart and and Charles Wilson Peel and John Trumbull and many uh, traveling European painters as well. Ralph Earl, Ralph Earl might not have painted Washington. Uh, Ralph, you know, Ralph Earl. It's not fit to <laughs> carry Copley's briefcase. So, you know, if he had stayed here and gotten the big get, he, he still wouldn't have become a patriot, but he could have been poised to be the kind of cultural entrepreneur that Peel was in Boston. You know, the American school could have materialized in America instead of instead of in London. And, you know, even if he had sat out the 70s and 80s and come back in 84 or 85 or 86, 
or even in 95 and 96 when he begins to explore the possibility of returning to the Boston that both is and isn't the place of his youth in this new United States. Even if he came back then, he owned you know, a dozen or more acres of Beacon Hill. He would have been a wealthy landowner and, a, and an enormously secure person at the artistic pinnacle of the colonies. You know, there's in into the 1790s until arguably when Stewart comes back, there's nobody within 3,000 miles who could touch him. It's also interesting to wonder if Washington, who was himself extremely careful, would have sat for the son-in-law of Richard Clark. In 1774 or five? Well, in 1774 or five, sure. I mean, I think one of the things that Copley, Copley shows us and invites us to inquire about other revolutionary characters is that there's a lot more shades of gray and a lot less black and white than we imagine in the revolutionary world. So really, even when the Continental Congress is meeting in 1774, into 1775, on the eve of the Declaration in 1776, there are a lot of people looking for middle road solutions. So speaking of shades of gray, let me interrupt to bring up Paul Revere, who who is an interesting case study in shades of gray, both politically, but also personally, in terms of how Revere interacts with Copley's family, or maybe interferes with Copley's family. I think today, the most famous picture of Copley's in America has to be where you open the introduction of your book, which is with the Revere that opens the MFA Boston's galleries. We think of Revere as as a patriot, and there's something very small R Republican about that picture. But really, the Copley Revere and Revere America story is a lot more complicated. How so? You know, Revere is in many ways like Copley. He's an elevated artisan from an immigrant family. Uh, He's a man on the make in the 1760s. I think we don't know quite why or for whom Copley paints that picture, but I think it's a device in some aspect of Revere's self-fashioning that goes well beyond the political, even though we take it for an icon of his liberty-loving soul. Revere, like many 18th century printers and engravers, is more of a pirate than an originalist. There's nothing that would have been surprising or or distressing about that. He, he couldn't draw, but he was very good at adapting. Or stealing. <laughs> uh, you know, would it have been called stealing in his day? Uh, so one of the one of the most famous images of the American struggle, not yet a struggle for independence in 1770 when Revere rushes it to market, is Revere's image of what he calls the massacre on King Street. And Revere pirates that image from uh, Copley's half-brother, Harry Pelham, who at that point is a very passionate liberty man, maybe pirates it even on parts of Pelham's own press. We learn in the exchange of letters following the theft of the image that Mary Pelham has loaned parts of the specialized mezzotint and engraving press that Peter Pelham had to Revere. So Revere, you know, I think he has increasingly passionate patriot politics, but he also has his eye on the main chance. And he does very well by doing good with that massacre image. You know, he is closely allied 
with the printers of the bright, uh, I, I stole my own joke there, the printers of the Boston Gazette, which is sort of the Breitbart news of its own day. You know, it is a hot political rag and uh, it's his alliance with Eads and Gill and his willingness to lift and rush an image to sail as soon as is practicable that gets that massacre image to be the sort of reigning icon of the American cause. I think really until there are circulating images of George Washington half a decade later. So Revere is, Revere is very fortunate in Copley's inescapable portrait, although it wasn't public art during Copley's or Revere's lifetime. And he also is fortunate in the ways that he uses and Harry Pelham would have said abuses Copley's family. So I've managed to fill up um, the hour with Copley in America more than I intended. But eventually Copley does decide to go to Europe and he, he, he takes the grand tour and makes it to London. How does Copley enter London and differentiate himself from his competition and and then we'll probably have to cut it there. I think the American Revolution or Britain's War is both his launch pad and his albatross in the London art scene of the 1770s and 1780s. Uh, so he wants to be a history painter. He takes a page from Benjamin West's book in painting modern dress histories and the subject in direct and indirect ways of his great London exhibited histories, which are Watson and the Shark, exhibited in 1778, and then the death of the Earl of Chatham, exhibited in 1781, and then uh, the death of Major Pearson, exhibited in 1784, and the siege and relief of Gibraltar, exhibited in 1791. These are, they're all in different ways, American war paintings. And uh, he is innovative. He's innovative pictorially. He's even more innovative in his strategies of exhibition. One of the first, if not the first, single artist, single picture shows competing with much lower forms of entertainment with tableau vivant and waxworks and uh, the restagings of naval battles in miniature. And the combination of that subject and the way that he stages really captures the imagination of a significant crowd between 1778 and, and 1784 or so. And then in the later part of his London career, he never goes back, as I've intimated, never goes goes back to, to no longer Britain's America. The later part of his London career he doesn't really adapt quickly enough to new subjects. So the siege and relief of Gibraltar depicting an event from the early 1780s takes him so long to complete that he's hanging it in 1791 when all of the eyes of Britain are on France. He misses the Napoleonic Wars, which is a big miss for somebody who is trying to capture the artistic eye of a nation in national and nationalist ways. So it's the American Revolution that launches him. He's the painter of a losing war, which I think is a, is a sort of delicate and elegiac business. He's good at that. He's, he's good at ruefulness. But then he doesn't quite move on. He's, as he was in many ways in his early life, 
fix it when he needs to be flexible. A good half of a revolution in color is Copley in Italy and London. I didn't do a very good job of getting us to it this hour, but hopefully listeners will go out and get the book because it's 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 great, lively stuff. Jane Kamensky, thanks so much. Thanks. It was really a delight to talk to you, Tyler. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Get to know the prolific 18th century sculptor and draftsman Edmé Bouchardon in the Getty's newest exhibition, Bouchardon, Royal Artist of the Enlightenment. Bouchardon combined an inventive spirit with a quest for perfection to achieve many of the masterpieces associated with Louis XV's reign, including the historic equestrian monument to the king that was destroyed in the French Revolution. Co-organized with the Louvre, this exhibition demonstrates the remarkable variety of the artist's work and his mastery of different media. Visit getty.edu to explore the exhibition online, or go in-depth with the catalog at shop.getty.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Hammer Museum curator Anne Elgood. Her new retrospective exhibition is Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World, the first major Durham show in the United States in about two decades. Durham came to prominence as an artist in New York City in the 1980s. His work has consistently addressed questions of identity, colonialism, and the inseparability of identity from politics in the United States. The exhibition is on view at the Hammer Museum through May 7th, when it will travel to the Walker, the Whitney, and to the Ramai Modern in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. The show's thorough catalog was published by Delmonico Pristel. Amazon offers it for $60. Anne Elgood, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. The title of your uh, lead essay in the catalog is Jimmy Durham, Post-American. What does it mean to be post-American in this context? Well, that's a great question. I And, and one that I really felt myself not necessarily having attributed the term to the idea yet, but in the course of working on the show, it was a question that I kept asking myself, what does it mean to be an American artist who has chosen to leave the U.S., uh, to be an artist who is fundamentally oriented internationally, has a real sense of the benefits of cosmopolitanism, is also politically averse to notions of nationalism, doesn't believe that certain borders are ethical, <laughs> and a lot of these kinds of questions. And I, I kind of landed on this idea of post-American, in part for the provocation that it suggests, but also because it's, it's a, adding post to various terms has been something, of course, that has been done in art, art, in art context, but also in politics and issues of representation, et cetera. So I was thinking about, you know, the idea of post-feminism, post-black, as was explored 
um, by Thelma Golden at the Studio Museum. And in fact, this idea of post-Indian has also been something that's been examined. And and I thought, you know, to to and th- those are terms that are used sometimes rhetorically, you know, sometimes um, with great hope for what it might suggest for the future, even. And but also they they always tended to make me bristle, you know. Um, the idea of post-feminism, for example, you just think, well, we're so far from being at that place where feminism has somehow accomplished all of its goals. And we all know that the idea of a post-racial society has, was of course talked a lot uh, about when Obama was elected and aspirational as it is, was also pushed against, of course. So I, I wanted to, think about those questions, but I also didn't want to use the term post-Indian or even anything that was so specific to a particular attribute of Durham. But I was intrigued by this idea of post-Americanism, which is obviously not a category (laughs) that I had heard before, but seemed somehow to allow me to think through some really important things about this artist and, and his practice, but also his politics, his philosophy and his ideas, all of which, you know, are woven into the work fundamentally. So it was kind of this question, you know, is he that? And if so, what is that? With that as background, it's probably important to start a conversation about Jimmy Durham um, with a little bit of biography. Um, sure. you know, I kind of subscribe to the TJ Clark idea that it's always dangerous to um, start with biography or to read biography into an artist's work, but I don't see how that's avoidable here. <laughs> um, so could could you kind of give us the, 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 the crisp Jimmy Durham life story? He was born in 1940 in, in Washington, Arkansas, and he's part Cherokee. And we can get into some of the... Um, issues around registration, enrollment, and some of some of that stuff if you want to. But um, yeah, exactly. Um, he left home very young uh, at the age of 16, and he joined the Navy. I, I have yet to ask him this. For some reason, I always forget. But I, I, I think he may have even joined the Navy before he was 18. But he sort of wandered around for some period of time joined the Navy and traveled a lot in Southeast Asia, actually got out of the Navy and moved to Texas, originally to Houston, to originally to Austin and and then to Houston and immersed himself in really the literary world there, particularly the poetry world. And he had, he, he started writing poetry. He's been an artist fundamentally. He'd learned to carve from his father and his grandfather and was always making things. His father also made a lot of furniture and just things that were handmade were around the house. And he met a Swiss guy in Texas who said to Jimmy, you know, you should come visit me at some point in Switzerland, in Geneva. So Jimmy did and ended up staying there for four years and enrolling in the fine arts school there. So he studied art in Geneva from 1969 to 1973. 
And he, in fact, loved being in Europe. Um, obviously, he's near the UN. He's always an activist throughout his life. So he's involved in activities around human rights. And being in that city, of course, there was a lot of activity going on. But he was also studying art very intensely. And he wouldn't have come back to the U.S. at that time except for really the moment when he decided to come back was the uprising at Wounded Knee in South Dakota. So he's following the activities of the American Indian movement and he's feeling a certain pull to be involved. And it was that event that really shifted him um, to the idea that he, he needed to come back to the U.S. So he comes back. By the time he gets to Standing Rock, um, the confrontation, which lasted 73 days, I believe, between the American Indian movement and the people on the reservation there and the U.S. government was over. So he kind of arrives right at the tail of that and gets involved, you know, joins AIM, becomes very active with the organization, and initially doing a lot of fundraising. They needed to hire attorneys. A lot of people were going to trial and so he was mostly in the Midwest initially. And then AIM decided to create a kind of a branch called the International Indian Treaty Council, which Jimmy became the director of. And that took him to New York. So he's in New York working for AIM, working very closely with the UN. A lot of the impetus behind the International Indian Treaty Council was to fight for rights for indigenous peoples in North and South America. So moving away from a national purview and thinking more internationally, which is something I think is fundamental to how Jimmy thinks about this kind of human rights work, that it should be international. And also it was very practical. The U.S. government had not proven itself to be trustworthy in many of these types of negotiations. And so why continue with that? You know, he wanted to have a, a larger conversation. So he's in, he's in New York working at the ITCC until 1979 when he retires from AIM altogether. And that puts him in New York really at this incredible moment. He essentially goes back to making artwork in the New York art world of the 1980s. And that's where he begins to really um, show his work and become part of, of the artistic community there. Yeah, that's a good place for me to jump in, because I think that makes really clear that while, he, while Durham went to art school, he is not a product of, of MFA world. Um, he, he's a product of the movements um, you referenced. Um, I guess the big question about his work and and I think that's in this show is are there some specific places we see the influence of his work um in social justice world in the work yes I think in in insofar as the primary concerns about how the history of the United States and its founding on a, 
on a genocide of a people has informed so much of not just the history, but the, um, in a way, the questions around race and the issues of representation that sort of come up in all aspects of our lives. But also, I think, I would argue in in a kind of psychology of of this country. So he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't, in fact, make work that responds to specific events within activist movements. You know, he doesn't, um, for example, he didn't make a piece about Standing Rock. Um, But these issues of of our history and how it's informed our national identity are really woven into the work in, in very particular ways. And one of the things that I think is very important about Jimmy's work, especially the early work where the material choices like animal skulls and animal feathers and fur and, and bones, as well as other natural materials, he was very aware would um, would for some read very stereotypically as the kind of materials an American Indian would use in their work. And, you know, he, he did that deliberately. He also did that because those are materials that he's quite drawn to and, and really just does genuinely love. But he wanted from the very beginning to critique certain expectations that an audience would have, particularly an American audience, but even an international audience. And because of that, he was often described as making work about himself, about his own biography, about his own identity. And he would usually counter with the idea that he's not making work about himself. He's making work about American identity and American history and fundamentally about the colonizer more than the colonized. And I always felt that that distinction was incredibly important. Can you think of one or two works that are a, a, a good visual example of that or a good visual summation of that idea? Well, the work that he made in 1984 for his show at the Alternative Museum, all of which consisted of animal skulls and various other materials, natural materials combined with um, usually found man-made or industrial materials. And that was a body of work that all had animal skulls in it. And that combination was important in the sense that he wanted to, one, one of the ways to kind of counter the stereotypical um, read of some of those natural materials was to combine them with unexpected elements. So you see traffic barriers and police barriers and car parts and things like that in those works. It's also important to note that this is 1984 and the primitivism show has happened at MoMA. So Jimmy's show opens in December of that year. So there was a lot of discussion, of course, around the primitivism show. And I think 
for me, my read on it is also that while there were uh, works by indigenous people, including American Indians, as well as other um, people around the world in the primitivism show juxtaposed to the works of modern masters. Um, all of those works, of course, are presented as anonymous. So for Jimmy to make this work that looked to be the work of an American Indian, but was authored very clearly, was an important gesture as a counterpoint in some ways to the, the issues that were raised in the response to the primitivism show. Another work I would point to in relationship to this issue is a piece he made a year later called On Loan from the Museum of the American Indian, which to me is his first overt work of institutional critique, which predates a lot of institutional critique by American artists that, that we associate with what I think of as, in a way, kind of the second wave of institutional critique, which is the younger generation of uh, people like Andrea Frazier and Mark Dion and Fred Wilson and others. So he makes this work, which doesn't exist anymore, and if you recall in the exhibition, I've gathered together elements from it and put them kind of recessed into the wall with an explanation about what that work was. but. It was a really important piece because he was responding both directly to the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian. At that time, there was an outpost in Manhattan, which is still there. But there was a lot of discussion in the 80s about the larger institution that would later be built in Washington, D.C., which opened in 2005. On the National Exactly. Mall. And so he was part of some of those conversations around the museum. What, what should it be, um, you know, gathering together, I think, different people in the community to have those conversations. Jimmy was always very skeptical of that museum, but also, in a way, any museum that was focused on a particular ethnic or racial group. So he, he was also struck by the singularity of the name of the museum. And this is where Jimmy's humor, I think, really comes into play. This great balance he has of being able to use humor, but also to take up, of course, very serious topics, but also things that he's, in fact, quite angry about or clearly concerned about or have particular political content for him. But he thought, you know, the National Museum of the American Indian, you know, how odd. And so decided that he would make himself that American Indian and did a whole display in a museological language that you would see in a, more likely in a, in a natural history museum that presented this, this American Indian, including pictures of his family and personal things, as well as these fake artifacts he would make and these fetish objects, one of which is my favorite, which is called Pocahontas's underwear. So, so he was thinking about that museum, but he was also thinking about museums more generally. 
And what we understand when we enter a museum to be the the display mechanisms that are used and, and the kind of voices that are present and the sense of objectivity often that accompanies those objects and those kinds of issues. I'm glad you brought up the sense of humor that is in a lot of the work and Pocahontas's underwear, I think we'll have a picture on manpodcast.com, uh, is a really good example. It's a really funny piece. Um, you referenced the kind of set apart within the show. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's going to remain the same as the show travels to to the Walker and the Whitney and I think to Saskatoon, although the Saskatoon venue may be not finalized yet. Um, or at least not have dates yet, um, but but that worked really well at the Hammer. Um, you know, one of the things I thought about walking through the exhibition is that Durham is using found objects um, and he's assembling them, but I don't know if I ever really felt like the work felt within the European assemblage tradition, you know, Picasso through mm -hmm. Dada, or the American assemblage tradition, whether of the East Coast variety in Rauschenberg or of the West Coast variety of, you know, George Herms and um, and so forth. Do you agree with that? And if you had to characterize where his using of that thing comes from, um, how would you um, point your finger at it? Where, you know, does it does it come from activism? Does it come from somewhere else? Obviously, I haven't figured it out. Yeah, so. <laughs> no, it's a great question. I think, and it's true, I don't actually really put him with other artists using assemblage that, I, I like you, I've never been sure quite where to place him because I don't think he's, in fact, aligned with any of those groups specifically, even though he would have been more or less aware of certain practices. I think the, I think the assemblage impulse for him comes from a few places. One is quite simply an absolute love of materials. So he's drawn to such a range of materials, even though there's a lot of consistency over time as well. And I think his instinct was often to put them together. He's also drawn to asymmetry and a kind of precarity and and resistance to notions of mastery and genius that I think also can lead an artist like Jimmy toward wanting to put things together in that way. That said, it's never random. Um, I think there's very careful consideration of the material choices and how they are put together. I think there's also real practicality to his uh, use of assemblage in that he had to find a lot of his materials. He wasn't able to buy a lot of materials. So he would use things that he found literally on the street. He would also use a lot of materials that were given to him or natural materials that were just available uh, around him. When I think of other artists that I would associate him with, I realize sometimes that it's artists he probably wasn't aware of. So being in LA now, um, I think of him 
a lot with artists like John Outerbridge and Noah Purifoy, who also, of course, used a lot of found objects and materials and also worked in assemblage. And in some ways, for similar reasons around, you know, finding those materials in a way that was feasible for them at the time. But also, I think, with a very strong connection to the political, economic uh, characteristics of those materials. I mean, more than any artist I've, I've ever worked with, Jimmy is, he studies his materials and knows a lot about them. So he's not just making choices based on what he know will work formally or even because he's drawn to something because it's beautiful, although those things, of course, enter into it. But there's a much more complex series of issues that, are, that enter into it for him in making those choices. The, the only relationship between the things I brought up and, and, and that you talked about um, and, and other American artists would, would, would be, I mean, there is a sense of humor in, say, Wallace Berman yeah. and, and George Herms. And, and and that's there in Durham, but like 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 you said, I don't think there's any reason to believe he, you know, cares. <laughs> you know that that's important to him. That 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 that, that being um, after those two artists, one of whom is still alive, George Herms, um, matters to him. Yeah, Did, you know, so many sculptors of Durham's generation pushed toward, or at least ended up. Um, working at monumental scale, you know, filling whole buildings, you know, like Dan Flavin would and did, um, or artillery sheds like Donald Judd did. I mean, I'm not sure you can get much bigger than filling an art a couple of <laughs> artillery sheds in the Western desert. Um, Durham never got interested in that. Have you thought about, I mean, there, there's a real consistency to scale mm -hmm. throughout his entire career. Have you thought about why that's important? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really important and it's quite notable. You know, when you walk through the show, I realized I, I wanted, there were a couple of larger scale pieces in the exhibition and I think it's, it is important that he will push to a certain degree, but you also become very aware that most things are human scale, you know, or slightly larger or smaller. And he's definitely not interested in monumentality. And I think that became more acute for him when he moved to Europe in, in relationship to architecture, architecture specifically. But um, I think it's always been in him that he, he, he has a, a desire for the work to be approachable in many ways. I think he wants people to interact with the work in a way that feels intimate on some level and also not overwhelming, not overbearing. And monumentality, I, I think he recognizes it as a kind of a strategy that can be, can lead to, to ideas of spectacle, but also um, just 
doesn't allow for the type of interaction that he wants people to have with his work. So when he goes to Europe, he becomes, and again, in a very humorous way, intent on creating alternatives to the kind of monumentality he, he was seeing just in aspects of European architecture that are very common to European cities, like huge archways and fountains in the middle of plazas. So at that time, for example, he started his series of Arc de Triomphe for personal use, which he's now made several different versions of, which are these very funny, rickety, simple uh, arc forms that are human scale and meant to be used by an individual. Um, he also has great pieces like one of which is in the show, as is one of the arcs, uh, a piece called a Stone Rejected by the Builder. So finding, and he, he did find the one that's in the exhibition, he, it is a stone that he found behind his studio and looked to have been carved to be, you know, a brick of some kind for a building and then wasn't used. Ergo, it must have been rejected by the builder, but then he paints it all these beautiful colors and kind of presents it as this art object, this desire to, in, in some way, elevate a rejected or forgotten material to the level of art, but also to pull something out of what would have been a much more monumental form and pay attention to this very small part of it. So uh, this is a subject that comes up a lot for him, this question of monumentality and and offering an alternative of some kind to that. And the largest scale work he's done, of course, are the smashed cars. And he also did one uh, small Cessna plane. And it's interesting because, and the Hirshhorn, of course, purchased one and now it's in front of the building. And in some ways, those works are better known to American audiences, not necessarily because the Hirshhorn purchased it, although that's, of course, going to add to that. But because they, you know, they're kind of sexy and provocative, and so there's been more images of those circulating than maybe other of his work. And although Jimmy, I think, loves those pieces and has made a few of them, I think because he's also skeptical of that on some level, you know, that that would be the work that has a kind of wider visibility because of this very issue of monumentality. One of the nice things about uh, the show at the hammer is uh, there's a lot of work on view, but it never feels like spectacle or any or or monumental spectacle or anything of the sort. And at this particular moment um, in American history and and in American politics, um, a pointed conscious rejection of spectacle is um, is meaningful. Um, I mean, I'm finding myself uh, when looking and thinking about other other exhibitions and presentations, you know, really, um, uh, you know, that I'm viewing spectacle with with a lot of suspicion. Yeah, but. me too. <laughs> yeah, Ann Elgood, thanks so much for speaking. Thank with me. you so much. It's been fun. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.